0: So, this week is a double whammy. (laughs) I thought I would squeeze in another episode to make up for the fact that we were gone for so long. And it's with American Cooking Royalty with the wonderful Alison Roman. She came over to London earlier in the summer and we recorded this then, I think the day after she'd written the final word of her new book, which is now out. It's quite a long one, but there was just so much to talk about. So, hopefully, you've got a long walk to go on or a lot of tidying to do, <laughs> and this can keep you company. If you are enjoying the podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe as it will mean that I can keep bringing it to you and it helps to give the show a little boost in the charts, which also helps other people find out about it. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Here we go. My guest today is Alison Roman. Alison is a cook, writer, and author. Her first book, Dining In, a best-selling cookbook of recipes she calls highly cookable. Now there's a much-anticipated second cookbook called Nothing Fancy. Alison is a contributor to Bon Appetit magazine and has a regular column in the New York Times. Described as a New York Nigella with well over 200,000 followers on Instagram, she has the ability to make recipes go viral. You may well have heard of her salted chocolate chunk shortbread cookies, known simply on the internet as The Cookies. Welcome, Alison. Hi. (laughs) Hi. So this is very exciting because I'd always imagined if I was to get you on the podcast, I would have to make a trip to New York. But here we
1: have you in London. I know. I'm so (laughs) happy to be here. It is such a wonderful place. Have you been here lots of times? Only once before. Really? Yeah, last April. Oh, wow. Which was very dreary, but I still... I was so charmed by everything that the weather didn't really matter. I thought everything was so cute and fun and old. And I just had the best time, even though it rained for seven days straight.
0: That's a good attitude to have in (laughs) England, I think, because that is sort of most often the case. Did you visit anywhere really great that sort of became a firm favorite? where Every time you come back, you're going to have to visit there again. You
1: know, I can't wait to go back to Rochelle Canteen. yeah, loved my lunch there. River Cafe as well. Although, you know, I might have to take out a bank loan yeah, <laughs> if I want to keep up that habit. But mostly, you know, oh, Forty Maltby. I loved that place. So good. But there were so many places I didn't get to check out on my first visit that I'm now going and making the rounds on this trip. So I'm very excited.
0: Um, okay, so you grew up in Southern California in the valley in Los Angeles. And from everything I've read, both of your parents were very keen cooks. So let's talk about the first Desert
1: Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. That's gonna be definitely my mom's trout, which I def which I absolutely put in my first cookbook, Dining In, because it was one of those dishes that was so important to me. And my mom de- like she cooked often, but she cooked the same few things. It, she wasn't, her repertoire is much more expansive now. I go to her house now for dinner and she's making things that I would have never thought she would have done when I was young. But one thing she made all the time was this butterfly trout dish and she took whole head on trout boned at the fish market and then would make a breadcrumb mixture with melted butter, lots of garlic, herbs, breadcrumbs, and then sprinkle that on the fish and broil it. And so because trout is so thin, you know, it would cook in minutes, maybe six to eight minutes or so under the broiler and. The breadcrumbs would get really nice and toasted and crunchy and the fish below it would just get barely cooked. And it was so, so delicious. And we'd finish it with more melted butter. Obviously. <laughs> and some fresh lemon. And still to this day is the dish that reminds me of my mom. Oh, that mom's so good. I mean, if you're not gonna have many dishes
0: in your repertoire, that's quite a good one to have. Yeah,
1: and I also feel like it's a great no recipe recipe. Like yeah. I feel like just from what I've described, you could probably make it at home. But the recipe is in the book if you if you must.
0: I also read a lot that um, artichokes
1: played quite a big part in your childhood. Mm, mm -hmm. That was sort of our meal. It would be the artichokes steamed with more garlic butter. The garlic butter was a multi-use condiment in our household. It it went on fish, it went (laughs) on the artichokes, probably with a bowl of rice pilaf or something and a cucumber salad. It was very California. Kind of, I imagine what you think California food was. In the '90s, especially, we we did it a lot of steamed asparagus, a lot of steamed artichokes, mm, yeah, salmon, trout, lots of <laughs> stuff like that. As someone who doesn't know America at
0: all well, moving from Los Angeles to New York is geographically like the furthest away, literally, the farthest, yes. And they seem to be very different places and very different cities. <laughs> but mm-hmm. how would you describe
1: the difference between the two? Uh, it's interesting because I've I've lived in New York mostly as an adult and my formative years were spent away from California, although I did live in San Francisco for a brief time as well. But I would say that the biggest difference is people tend to be a little bit more relaxed in Los Angeles and a bit more hurried in New York. But I thrive in that kind of environment. I like that energy. Similarly to London, I like that you know you can walk outside and get everything you need and hop over to the bar and hop over to the Grocery store and hop over to the wine shop and hop over, you know, get home on the tube. And I really enjoy that sort of convenient, fast paced lifestyle. And things in Los Angeles definitely are a little bit slower, a little bit more relaxed. But honestly, every time I go back, the similarities increase because of globalization in any city that the internet makes things kind of available everywhere. Things become less specific to a city you get a Shake Shack in LA, it's yeah. over, you know, yeah, <laughs> no, no, there's no great. reason to go to New York. No, um, <laughs> the weather is nicer as well. But, okay. and I still dip. will prefer New York. A good day, a nice day in New York pops any nice day in LA.
0: It's interesting. Okay. And so there sounds like there was lots of cooking going on during your childhood. And I read that you had a grandpa who lived in Oklahoma and he grew his own vegetables and baked his own bread and something you said, which I thought was really interesting was you described how he just wouldn't be at all interested in the notion that we have today that food is cool or that cooking is cool because to him, it was just what what you did. If you wanted bread, you had to bake it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely uninterested. He was also a very practical person. And so he grew his own tomatoes because that's where else are they going to come from? Yeah. You know, he raises <laughs> his rabbits because how else are you going to eat rabbit? And I think that he would be probably not even amused at our food culture today, probably just annoyed
0: honestly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, or just kind of baffled by it. I think it's a generational thing as well of just taking for granted um, how accessible everything is to us these days. And we don't actually have to work that hard for it. We don't have to learn how to raise rabbits or grow tomatoes because we have <laughs> access to it all. And um, I think that's that's the main difference. But yeah, he would just be wholeheartedly uninterested. (laughs) I think he would appreciate it, but you know.
0: He'd be interested because you were doing it, but beyond that. Maybe not want to
1: participate.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is incredible how much it's changed in such a short space of time because that's one person's lifetime, isn't it? Correct. It's crazy. Okay, let's talk about the second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook.
1: Mm, The first dish I learned how to cook was a basic spaghetti tomato sauce. And this came from every Wednesday, I would spend time at my best friend's house. And because my mom was volunteering at this animal sanctuary, long story for another podcast, but (laughs) and so I spent every Wednesday with my best friend and her mom would cook us dinner and we had pasta every Wednesday. And it was, it started off as a joke because she, you know, wasn't doing it intentionally, but soon we realized she said, oh, I forgot we had pasta last Wednesday. And then we started doing it on purpose. We, it became purposefully pasta Wednesday. I like that. And the sauce she made was made from uh, caramelized onions, canned tomatoes, lots of garlic and fresh basil. And it was very basic, very simple. And I watched her make it a hundred times and as i started getting older i started spending less time there on wednesdays because i didn't need anyone to watch me right and so i missed the pasta though and i i wanted that pasta so bad it was a taste that i remembered and wanted to recreate and this was really the around the time that i started cooking in general and so i remember going home and trying to make pasta sauce and i would read other cookbooks about how their pasta sauce was and this is you know basic red sauce and i was barking up all of the wrong trees. I it was so off base. I I can't imagine how I got from there to where I am today because it was. What were you it, putting in there? Actually? I was putting carrots and <laughs> like because I read somewhere that you should put a carrot in your tomato sauce for sweetness, and I was blending it, which she never did. I don't know why. I, I thought I was outsmarting the yeah. system. Maybe I was going to make it better or improve upon it, or I don't know. It was. It never tasted bad. It was never a disaster, but it certainly was not on point. But that was definitely the first thing that I, I guess, tried to learn. Yeah. And how old would you have been at the time? I was probably about 13 or 14. Okay. And so did you ever think at that point that food might turn into what you did? Never, never, ever. Even as I started cooking professionally, I never thought, oh, this is what I'll do for the rest of my life. It was kind of just, I kept saying yes and kept falling deeper, deeper in love with it and pursuing it. That I found myself here yeah sitting across from you talking about food
0: <laughs> so I know because you left college to cook full-time yes and you say that your parents weren't happy about it at the time but at that point you definitely just viewed cooking as a job and not as a career what what do you think was the draw ultimately to the world of food at that point
1: well I mean I didn't really think that I I didn't have any career ideas at okay. that point and what were you reading at college Cookbooks. Okay. <laughs> what
0: were you studying? What
1: was Oh, um creative writing. Okay. Yeah. And political history. And which is funny because I thought, okay, well, I'm not gonna be a professional cook, obviously. And I'm also probably not gonna be a professional writer, but maybe I'll be a teacher. And now I find through writing cookbooks, I kind of do both. I kind of teach and I write. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting way to end up here, you know. If yeah, I had told myself 20 years ago that that's what I'd be doing professionally, I would have been like, what a dream. And it is a dream. And I feel so, so grateful.
0: Um, I know that you've said that you toyed with the idea of going to culinary school, but that you didn't end up going. Are you pleased that you didn't go? Extremely pleased. Yeah. Yeah. I saved that (laughs) (laughs) $50,000. What have you put it towards?
1: (laughs) I put it towards
0: uh, paying rent. Yeah. Probably. Let's be honest. And pots and pans. And pots and pans. Yeah. If this had never happened, what do you think you might have ended up doing? Like, Do you have a sort of parallel life where you're a rocket scientist oh, or God, an no.
1: artist? No. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm definitely not a rocket science, right? <laughs> rocket science. See, I can't even say it. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm definitely not a rocket scientist, but I'm horrible with math. Oh you? Oh, uh, the worst. But um, oh, no, I mean, there is a part of me that thinks I would be a teacher still or a writer in some other capacity or an editor. But yeah, I think I have too many opinions to be an editor. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that must be the hardest bit of that job.
0: Yeah. So your first job in L.A. was working as a pastry chef and you describe what it was like back then and how when you tell people you're a pastry chef, they would almost feel sorry for you (laughs) as though kind of it was something to be
1: pitied, like you weren't able to get a real job, which is funny because that is so different to how it is today. I know. It was really interesting. I remember people introducing me to their friends. Uh, My best friend went to UCLA. And I would visit her on campus and everyone would say, well, where do you go to school? And I would say, oh, I don't go to school anymore. I, I'm a pastry chef. And they'd be like, oh, that's so good for you. <laughs> you know, it was sort of this like, oh, I couldn't hack it in college or I wasn't smart enough to get in. Or it, it, there was always sort of this vibe that I was choosing such an alternative lifestyle. And it must have been because I couldn't yeah. somehow make it in the in the way that everybody else was Carving out their life. And I think if today you say that, even if you're young, people are impressed and excited. And you know, the culture really did start to change as I worked in restaurants and I saw it happen over the course of those. 6 or 7 years but when I first started out it was definitely a different world. Yeah, that's so interesting.
0: Do you think the industry of food and food culture is one of the places that social media has
1: had the biggest impact? Like do you think that's responsible for the change? Absolutely. I think that, you know, when I started cooking there was we didn't even have iPhones, which makes me sound a thousand years old, but and we certainly didn't have Instagram and when I started cooking the only thing i knew was that you could work in a restaurant i didn't know that there were other jobs out there i didn't even take into consideration that i could maybe ever write a cookbook or work at a magazine or a newspaper or be a food stylist or you know a food photographer or any of the wide array of jobs that are available today and you know i talked to a lot of young people that are getting their start or want to get their start and say well how did you know how to do this follow this career path and honestly i didn't i kind of just found myself here by winding and weaving up a road and kind of as things unfolded, as magazines gained popularity and, you know, a columnist position would open in a newspaper or cookbooks became, you know, a way to make a living, then I pursued those options. But it wasn't anything that I aspired to because I didn't know that they existed. So I think career-wise, social media and the internet has changed it drastically, but it's also the way that it shares information and it I think it engages people and encourages you to cook at home more and I think what we're seeing is it used to be all about going to a restaurant or a bakery or a cafe and taking a picture of the thing that everybody gets there. Yeah. <laughs> and now what I'm seeing, I mean at least from my vantage point is that people are just as excited to cook something at home and take a picture of it and share it. And I think it's a lot more rewarding for someone because they say I made that. I did That's that.
0: Really, yeah, definitely. Do you are you glad in a way that social media wasn't around when you started.
1: Oh, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. I feel so bad for people that have to, that that is their reality. Even I mean, think about if Instagram was around when I was in high school. Oh my God. Can you imagine? No, I could barely handle the- <laughs> my or live journal. Beyond I, stressful. Yeah. I just, it, oh my God, I'm stressed out just thinking about it. So me too. I am grateful that it happened when it did. Um, I think, it's still a challenge as an adult to have it be a part of your life. So I imagine as a teenager it would be nearly impossible.
0: Let's move on to the third
1: desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Mm. Honestly, the answer probably would change if you asked me this question every day. Okay. But I find You can that... give us some options. Okay. <laughs> well, there's a few dishes that I've had that have made me cry, where I've like, abs- like, I've, like shed a tear okay. for. And typically these dishes all have something in common in that I have them outside of New York where I live. It is more about the place and the time and the ingredients than anything else. It's nothing complicated. It's nothing fancy, if you will. One of those dishes is the cacio e pepe at Riccioli in Rome. That pasta blew my mind. And there's no reason that a dish so simple should have have such an impact on me. But I was eating at the bar alone. It was at the end of my trip. And I had had 18,000 bowls of e Pepe by the yeah. point. I was just obsessed with this pasta. And, you know, it's simple. It's it's cheese. It's butter. It's lots of pepper. Um, it's salt. It's pasta. And it was just everything about it was so perfect. The sauce was perfect. There was the perfect amount of it. The pasta was cooked perfectly. I was just... It was amazing to have sampled it so many times and then end my trip with what I thought was the definitive version. And... It just reaffirmed what I already know about food, which is that simple can sometimes be the most effective. And similarly, I had these grilled prawns in Portugal. I forget the name of the place, but it was on the coast outside of Lisbon uh, near Sintra. And it was just prawns that they had grilled over a fire and squeezed with lemon. And I absolutely lost my mind. They were perfect. They tasted like the ocean, but a different type of ocean that I had ever tasted before, even though they probably came from the Atlantic and I live off the Atlantic. I don't know. There was just something about the place and they were just a perfect specimen. It was just so beautiful to think, oh, this just comes from nature and we eat it. And isn't that nice? And it sounds so cheesy, but it was true. I had such an emotional reaction.
0: Are we talking like a silent tear that sort of
1: Slowly rolled and yeah, roll I, think, down your yeah I just we're <laughs> we talking like proper. No, loving? I was no. no, there was no sobbing. <laughs> I, I definitely have cried at dinner more than once. So this <laughs> is not one of those times. Um, no, I was just kind of emotional and feeling yeah. really connected to it, and it reaffirmed also just how important food is to me. And it's nice that you can be emotionally moved by a painting in a museum and also a, a prawn on completely. your plate. And it felt really special. No, completely. Those two those two experiences are so similar. Mm-hmm. You decided to
0: move to New York for three months in a bid to move away from the world of restaurants, and you ended up staying, so far, indefinitely. Tell us a little bit about that decision and, and how you came to stay for so long.
1: Yeah. So n- next February will be tenure, which is wild. I think that officially makes me a New Yorker. Yeah, I think it... Although everyone who knows me says that I've been a New Yorker my whole life. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> With, I don't know if it's a compliment. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll take it as one. Yeah, I, I think- like New York, but... um Yeah, you know, I was going to just move for a few months and then I got a job at a bakery for working for a Momofuku milk bar just to pay the bills. And they ended up promoting me and giving me a salary and insurance and a tight job title. And I thought, okay, well, I should take advantage of this because it didn't make sense for me to move back to California and then move back to New York. So I decided to stay for as long as I wanted, which ended up being, yeah, indefinitely 10 years later. In your mind at that time, were you thinking, well,
0: I've got this new job now, so maybe I'll stay a a year?
1: Yeah, I was just kind of, we'll see what happens with this job. There was an energy to New York that I wasn't experiencing in California, specifically San Francisco, where I had come from. And the energy that I felt was possibility. Like I felt in New York that more things were possible. I felt like there was more opportunity and I didn't know what the opportunities were and I didn't know what the possibilities were, but there was an energy to it. It got me for sure. And I felt like, if I want to do something different, it has to be here. Okay. That's so interesting. Okay. So then how did you go from... Because it was the
0: Momofuku mm-hmm. um, Milk Bar, wasn't yeah. it? So then you ended up getting a job at Bon Appetit?
1: Yes. So I loved Milk Bar. It was just sort of not sustainable. And it was really hard because I had really made friends with everybody there. It was a really wonderful group of women and they became my family in New York and my network. And that's how I met a lot of people that I know today. And it was a really special, fun time. But I think I knew, okay, I moved to New York to not work in restaurants and I kind of found myself working at a restaurant again. So even though it was a bakery is a bit different, but so I I made the decision to leave and just kind of figure it out. I remember the day that I quit, I, I went for a walk with Christina Tosi, who's the owner. And we had this really emotional talk of me just saying like, cause I didn't leave for another job. I left to go find myself essentially, which is so funny, but she totally understood and was insanely supportive. And, um, yeah, it was really a, a special time, but I left and kind of just started telling everybody that I knew I'm looking for work that's in food. And again, this was before Instagram. We didn't really, I didn't understand the, the wide variety of jobs that existed because probably cause a lot of them didn't exist. Yeah. Um, And I definitely didn't have enough of my own voice to be writing cookbooks on my own yet. And so I knew I wanted to stay in food. I knew that I wanted to get back into writing. And so how would I do that? And like from heaven above, this job appeared where I interviewed for and I met with the food editor at Bon Appetit and they brought me in for sort of a test run and I fell in love with it. Yeah. And then soon you were a senior food editor. Yeah. So things went pretty well. Yeah. They went well. I, I, it took well to me. I took well to it. And I was, you know, it was something that I was good at and I enjoyed doing. And it was hard. It was really challenging. It was like no job I'd ever had before. And I had deadlines and I was responsible, but I was basically working a nine to five and going into an office building. And that was really different. And, you know, it was amazing how much I enjoyed the challenges of that job and of solving the problem of making a recipe work for the home cook and translating a recipe from a chef to a home cook. And, you know, having worked in restaurants for all those years really proved to be valuable during that time. Yeah. I read that you describe yourself as 50% cook
0: and 50% writer. Is that still accurate?
1: Uh, it depends on the day. Yeah. Depends <laughs> on the week. I feel like for the past few months, I've been mostly a writer and then going into the summer with things for the fall I'll probably switch over to being mostly a cook and then I'll go back to being 50/50 and you know each week each day is is so different and I think with something like the cookbook writing process of doing it I'm you know you're 50% cook 50% writer because it's one thing to make a recipe that works which is really important but you have to be able to describe it to someone enough so that they want to make it. definitely, And I think that they go hand in hand. Yeah, completely. So you were senior food editor at
0: Bon Appetit. And then, I mean, that's a dream job, but you made the decision to leave, not because you were unhappy, but because you were worried that you might get too comfortable. I think that's such a brave thing to do because you did that with the milk bar and then you did that here you know, when
1: everything's going really well, did you find that a difficult decision? Oh my God, I cried every day. Yeah, <laughs> it was really challenging for sure. Um, yeah, you know, I felt like I had reached my full potential there at the time. And I, I feel like where they were as a magazine and where I was personally and professionally, I kind of wanted more and I wanted to see what I could do on my own and thought it would be great to, to explore that and to say, well, I'd rather struggle and say that I did it myself and be successful than constantly be under the umbrella of something else where it's really hard to have a clear identity when you're being edited and everything is being shot and photographed and styled to look and feel and sound a certain way to really come out with like your true voice is a challenge. And I think a lot of editors do it there successfully now. But for me at the time, I kind of knew that I could, if I stayed, I would stay forever probably. Okay. And it's nice to feel like that I have built something on my own, even if I don't have, you know, have the support of a company behind me.
0: Yeah, completely. I mean, it, it is a very brave thing to do. Do you think that's just in your nature that? Yeah, you'd...
1: I think so. Yeah. yeah. I definitely love to push things and I definitely don't love being comfortable. Um, I think that I am finally getting to a place, I think as I get older, as my career develops of becoming happier with what I have and not feeling the need to kind of ruffle things so intensely. I feel very happy and and fulfilled by the ability to write cookbooks. But then I was also like, well, I want a column at the New York Times. Well, so yeah. then I got that. And now <laughs> I'm like, well, I want this and I want that. And so I think I'm always going to want more. But in terms of I don't see myself shedding anything at the time. Yeah. But I mean, a column at the New York Times thats kind of like... The peak. It was. Well, yeah, I, mean. I was like, well, that's that was the goal. Yeah, and I knew that I wanted that so bad for years. So, and how did it come about? Well, I had been contacted by uh, my editor there, Emily Weinstein, and she had approached me and said, "We, I love your recipes. We'd love for you to write for us." But I was working up on a petite at the time, and I couldn't. But when I left, I reached back out to her and said, "I would love to write for you guys." And so I started contributing, and they would assign me recipes, and I would pitch them ideas, and. I was just kind of folded into their rotation of people that were contributing to their database. And then after about a, two years, I had a meeting with them and with the food editor, Sam Sifton. And he said, well, what do you want? Like, what what's the, on the agenda for you for life? And I said, well, I really want to call him. Yes. And he was like, okay. <gasps> so they gave it to me. <laughs> oh my God, but I amazing. think it was, you know, having worked with them for two years and getting the hang of their style and the editing process, which is in, completely different from a magazine. And them just being really supportive of me and letting me develop, you know, what it is the column has become, which has been so great. And I feel very, very fortunate to be able to work with them. Is it true? You cried for two days when you got the column.
0: <laughs> I when, when
1: I read that, I thought that was very restrained. I can imagine. It's like yeah. Weeks at a time. You know, I don't know if it was a full two days, <laughs> a full 48 hours, but I did cry a, a bit. Yeah. I, it was just, again, very emotional because it was a goal that I had had for so long. And I, never thought that it would be possible. I didn't graduate college. And to be able to kind of put faith in myself from the beginning, from my first day working at a restaurant to looking at like how hard I've worked over the last 12 to 15 years, to say that I earned this feels really good. And I do feel like I earned it. I feel like I worked really, really hard. And... I still work really hard, but that to say it, that was a real signifier. It was the same thing when I got a cookbook deal. I felt like I had achieved something that I set out to do. Yeah. Their life goals. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. We're onto the fourth desert
0: Island dish. Very important question, Allison. What is your favorite sandwich?
1: You are going to hate this answer, but I don't actually like sandwiches. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's okay, Allison. Let's, let's unpack this. Yeah. I don't. Okay. So, what do you not enjoy about a sandwich? It's mostly always too soft. Okay. I don't love... It's all one texture. Yeah. It's the same reason I don't like burritos. Yeah. I don't like my food touching. Like on Thanksgiving, I need all my food separate. I like to eat it together, but I don't want Um, them touching. Okay. I know. Is it together on your fork? Sometimes, but mostly not. Separate. Yeah. Like I'll take a bite of something and then reach for the cranberry sauce. or the. But what about
0: a sandwich that has like really crunchy things in it, like pork crackling or something? They get soft. Uh,
1: Oh, okay. So, which is why I am a stuff on, I would rather have stuff on toast. Okay. So if I, it's not that I don't like the things in the sandwich. It's that I need the ratios to be just right. So if I'm making my own sandwich. Yeah. I mean... I'll make a pretty good sandwich. I'll make okay. like a really good BLT because that has a lot of texture. I love iceberg lettuce. Yeah, so good. Um, so I would say my favorite sandwich is, um, there's one sandwich that I've had at this place in Maine and it's called the Palace Diner. <gasps> well, in And it's a tuna melt. Okay. But it is about 50% iceberg lettuce and 50% tuna. Okay. <laughs> and it is perfect because when you bite it, there is so much texture and crunch in there. And the bread is toasted and it is so good. Yeah, that's And that's like, that's like my kind of sandwich. Okay, so where do we get that sandwich? And unfortunately, I have to go all the way to Maine. Okay, you well, know. it sounds like it would be... Biddeford, better. Maine, which yeah. it's really the only reason to go is for the sandwich.
0: <laughs> so you've been working for Bon Appetit for four years when you got approached to write your first cookbook, mm-hmm. Dining In. I guess a debut book is hard because it kind of sets the scene for you both as a cook and as a writer. So you kind of have to really figure out what it is that you wanted to
1: say. Did, Did you find that? I found that it was extremely hard to define myself. Yeah. And that was probably the hardest part of the first cookbook. And on one hand, comparatively speaking to the second, it's a bit easier because nobody has expectations of you. And I was able to be myself and say, well, I hope people like me. I hope people like it. Because had you only read me at Bon Appetit, it's easy to kind of say, oh, I like Bon Appetit and this person writes for them. But to be on your own, you're a lot more vulnerable and you don't have the support of this amazing editing team or creative team and arsenal of photographers. But it is very challenging to kind of say, well, this is a defining moment and I am setting the tone and I am From now on, like this is what I will. This is the standard I will be held to. This is the how people will know me. This is what people will think of me. This is the first impression. It's a first impression. It's quite a lot of pressure. Yeah, it was a lot of pressure. And then with the second book, I felt less pressure on that front because I thought, okay, well, people already know me, and I'm still me, and this is just more of me. And yeah, but the second book, there was the pressure to maintain that level of excitement and give something. Give people something familiar, but also fresh yeah. and not the tricky second album. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, <laughs> everyone says, you know, you have your whole life to write your first, whatever your first novel, your first album, your first book, and you have 17 months to write your second, Yeah. you know, it's just yeah. different. Your, your world is different. Yeah. That's so interesting. They both come with their own pressures,
0: but very different Mm ones. And you have a really personal style of cooking, which you describe, well, this is what you say. You say, I wouldn't call it lazy. I prefer the term lo-fi, which I think is such a great description. Do you think that does kind of sum up your approach?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I am, just because I was a professional cook or I am still now in some ways, that doesn't mean that I'm trying to make things complicated and, or show off or show you every single technique I know or how to do the perfect this or the perfect that. My goal now is, and what I feel is a responsibility is to teach you how to cook better for yourself and to encourage you to do it more. And I'm more concerned with you doing it at all. And, you know, that's why this first book wasn't a technique book. It wasn't like a be all end all, like how to do everything perfectly and correctly all the time. I really wanted it to be. A book that you could use to get inspiration and feel encouragement of knowing that you can change ingredients or if you don't have this kind of pan, that's okay because, you know, not everybody is working with professional great equipment and having that technique and scaring people into perfection is, I think, completely, you know, counterproductive. And, you know, I own a blender. I never use it. I have a food processor. I use it twice a year. I have one skillet that I the hell out of. I cook on sheet pans. I, you know, I, I very basic bare bones style. And I think that you can do a lot of magic with very few things. Yeah, completely. I and, mean, and, and all of those
0: things when it's, when the, I don't know, there's too much pressure, it just takes all the joy out of it. And at mm-hmm. the end of the day, cooking is meant to be fun. Exactly. So the book has been incredibly successful. And I've heard you say that in lots of ways, it changed your life. Did you ever expect that level of success? Because obviously when you write a book, it would be weird not to sort of imagine it being hugely successful, but yeah.
1: you sort of see that as a reality. You know, I didn't really know what to expect because I didn't know how it would change my life. Yeah. And I think the way that it has is that it has, now I can say I'm a cookbook author. I didn't just write a cookbook. I am a cookbook author. That's yeah. what I do now for a living forever, hopefully, <laughs> you know, and like that, that is really empowering and that is great. And I also have just been noticing the way people have responded to the recipes and the style of cooking, and I feel like it's been quite impactful. And that feels amazing. I feel like it's bigger than me. It's bigger than the cookbook. It's kind of changing the way generations are are feeding themselves and their families and entertaining for their friends and using food and cooking as a way to entertain rather than going out or doing other things with their time and money. And that, I think, not that I'm solely responsible, I think there's a, a many brilliant cookbook writers and magazines and newspapers out there doing the same thing, but I feel part of something. Yeah. It's a part of um, a movement. Yeah. Of a conversation. Yeah, definitely.
0: Oh, it's so exciting. Yeah. It's very cool. Like, yeah, that one book. I mean, imagine if, yeah, imagine
1: if you hadn't written but it now. I, I mean, you would have it. done it. It feels so old to me now. Yeah. It's really so funny. Yeah, How long did it take you to write it? I mean, I wrote it in less than a year, probably. Yeah. But again, you have your, fo- your whole life to write that one. I knew there were so many recipes in there that I knew I was going to put in and I kind of yeah. knew by heart. And I was like, you know, reading it now, it feels a lot more all over the place than the second book. I feel like the second one's a bit more curated and like tightly specific and, okay. you know, but... Ooh, I'm so excited to see it. Me too. And um, let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat
0: the most often.
1: Probably popcorn. Ooh. I make a lot of popcorn in my house. I, I do stovetop in a pot yeah i pop it in ghee or coconut oil yeah and then i finish it with um nutritional yeast and like crushed aleppo pepper chili flake and lots of salt oh i bet that's so good yeah i eat that a lot it honestly depends on the time of year because right now i don't have air conditioning in my kitchen okay or anywhere i have one unit in my bedroom but okay and that's quite a big thing in new york isn't it yeah we just have window units because no one has central really okay
0: yeah but it gets so hot. I mean, we don't know about that here because no one has air
1: con because it's never oh, really? gets hot enough. Oh, my gosh. Not yeah. at home, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are sweating every day to the okay. oldies in New York. It is absolutely insane. And it's, it's yeah, it's wild. And so I told myself this year I'm getting a window unit for my kitchen, which I'm going to do. It's going to be great. I can't wait. But when it's hot in the summertime, I, I don't want to cook anything. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm like sitting outside of my fire escape. I'm eating fruit. And then in the wintertime, it's a lot of, you know, quick soups and stews. One thing I do actually make year round, um, I make a lot of noodle dishes for myself, like rice noodles with chopped cucumber and like fish sauce and soy and lime and tons of herbs just kind of as like a quick snacky lunch. Gosh, um, I love the it, way you say hub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the in the winter, I'll add, you know, I keep a lot of chicken broth in my freezer and kind of turn it into a soupy thing. But anything spicy and noodle related is yeah. is on heavy rotation. Okay. That's a good. It could be Italian or any sort of vaguely Vietnamese or Thai Japanese leaning yeah. dish. I anything love. noodle based. Noodle based. Um, so
0: we have to talk about your viral recipes mm. of which I feel like you're the queen. <laughs> your first was <laughs> hashtag the cookies, which were from dining in. And then subsequently, you've also had the stew. Mm-hmm. Path, I'm sure many others. Obviously, Now, have this huge platform. But what do you think it was about those recipes in particular that caused them to go viral?
1: You know, I don't know. I think that they all go viral for a different reason. And I think that normally when I hear the word viral, I think that there's like a trick or a gimmick or a hack or a stunt involved. And there wasn't any with these recipes. Um, The cookie, I see, I understand a bit more because it was a familiar thing, right? I mean, A, it's a cookie, it's butter and sugar what's bad about that? Literally nothing. But it it's something that you can latch onto. Okay. I know what a chocolate chip cookie is and I know what a shortbread is, but I don't know what this is because it's somehow marrying the two concepts. What's it going to taste like? Is it going to be more shortbread or more chocolate chip cookie? Will I like it more or better? Will I <laughs> prefer a regular chocolate chip cookie? There's a lot to kind of be curious about if you see this recipe, I think, but the familiarity of it and the fact that it's what five or six ingredients and you probably have most of them on hand anyway. And I think that's enough to get someone to make it. And then when you make it and you taste it, you're like, damn, these are really good. They are really good. I mean, I never, ever, ever thought they would be as successful as they were. And even now, I'm like, yeah, it's a pretty good cookie. It's I'm not losing my mind over it.
0: Because also you're right that in order for a recipe to go viral, pe- lots of people have to be cooking it and then eating it because you can only truly appreciate an amazing recipe if you have cooked it yeah, and eaten it. exactly. But you're right that the process of getting people... To that point.
1: Yeah. And I think that the sharing of it is something that helped, especially with the stew. But the stew is hilariously popular because it's, it's like a brown pot of (laughs) chickpeas. It's hysterical (laughs) that it became so popular, but that was New York, the New York Times. Yes. That was published in the New York Times. And I thought nothing of it. I literally was like, Oh, just chickpeas. I I don't know. I, I think that all of my recipes for the column are, are great. Yeah. You know, otherwise I wouldn't publish them. And, but you didn't think anything differently of that no. than you did the week before? No, certainly not. And so I mean, I remember eating it being like, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's delicious. <laughs> um, And one thing I think that the stew and the cookies have in common is that when you make them at home, it's always going to look like it's always going to look the same, which I, I do try to do with all of my recipes. I try to have it. I style my all my own photos. So I make all the food that you see in photographs for my book and the column. And so the idea being is that I'm actually cooking it, I'm plating it and I'm photographing it. Yeah indicating to me that if you just follow the recipe like I just did it's probably going to look just like that yeah
0: which is what you want otherwise you feel bad
1: that it doesn't look like how it looks and I think that's really encouraging and people want to show other people that and I think that that is again like part of the conversation definitely okay so nothing fancy your second
0: cookbook yet we're awaiting it eagerly anticipated what can we expect from this one
1: well, I think that if you like dining in, you're going to you're going to love nothing fancy. But, um you know, I think of it as a sister book. I think of them as almost not companion pieces, but stylistically, they are definitely related. I think all of the recipes share... That highly cookable nature because that's just who I am. And I think all of my books will always and forever have that. But this book is geared more towards, you know, cooking for other people. Whereas I feel like dining in is very much like you can be you alone in the kitchen or just kind of you alone with this thing. Nothing fancy to me is about opening your home, whether that's inviting one person over or eight people or whatever. And just kind of encouraging you to view that experience as something that doesn't have to be stressful. That is should be fun and enjoyable. And We live in such a culture of aspirational perfection and lifestyle. And that is just not me. It's never been me. It's never going to be me. And that's not me when I have people over. That's not me when I cook for others. I roast two chickens on a sheet pan and serve them off the sheet pan. I run late every night when I am cooking for others. I run out of ice. I, you know, don't have enough fridge space to store my wine. So I put it in the bathtub. I, you know, there's a million things that go wrong. And that's just. Not the point, and I yeah. don't have matching tablecloths, and i don't have I don't even have matching forks, but that's not going to stop me from, yeah. <laughs> from having people over, but you know the food style is is similar to dining in, and that yeah, again, highly cookable, looks beautiful, low effort it's things that I feel like are all geared towards making your life a little bit easier, so things that don't take a ton of time or a ton of prep, but there are a lot of do ahead, so if you want to like do this before I, I let you know when that's a good time, you know, hours or days ahead or things that should be done last minute or what dishes go with other dishes when you're saying, okay, well, I know I want to make this uh, pot of, you know, pork and kimchi stew. What should I go? What should go with it? Or, you know, I know I want to make, you know, my friend's vegetarian. What should I do? I, oh, I can do these grain sides with these two salads and that'll be a great meal. Stuff like that. I'm just kind of suggestions and and helping you plan a bit more.
0: Are you getting good at predicting which recipes are going to be the ones that really excite people? Like, Do you have predictions for this one?
1: No, I have none. You love them all the same. I love them all the yeah. same. <laughs> um, I think as soon as I think that I know, I don't know. But dining in, I thought it was going to be the anchovy butter chicken. That was definitely That's not going one. to be it. Yeah, it's delicious delicious. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I also saw on Twitter the other day, you, there's like a... Um, strawberry shortcake
1: oh yeah you yeah. Were like this one was really good and well that's didn't, the other thing there's get as much so left. many great recipes that never see the light of day because people don't talk about them enough or they're too seasonal or whatever and I think that you know while I would never call my cooking highly seasonal I definitely I'm from California it's in my blood I am a seasonal cook I I like to cook with tomatoes and melon in the summer and I like to use canned chickpeas and mushrooms in the winter and but I think that you know in today's world we can kind of cook anything anytime so yeah those hyper seasonal ones though with like beautiful strawberries it's like yeah well that the book comes out in october yeah we're not going (laughs) to see a lot of play until summer yeah that's a good point so this is a very hard question but a good one for you i
0: think what do you think gives you more joy cooking or eating Mm.
1: gosh great question i don't know i that's i can I say 50 50? Okay. I (laughs) mean, it has to be. Yeah. You know, I will say when I'm cooking, I get more joy out of cooking than I do eating. But when I'm in a restaurant, I get, you know what I'm saying? Like I, it's not like I cook a plate of food and then can't decide in that moment whether or not I'd rather eat it or cook it. Cause I would always choose cook, but there's something about, especially eating. I love eating at restaurants alone. It's such a nice thing to do for yourself. And yesterday I was at a restaurant in London, um, Brat, well, yeah. And, and did you go on your own? I did. I, I just sat that. at the bar and I had a glass of champagne and yeah. two perfectly grilled langoustines and a salad. And it was awesome. <laughs> and I had such a lovely time. Do you take a book or do you just? Yeah, I either take a book or a notebook yeah. and do some I writing. It's that. a good time to, for me to do writing that isn't necessarily food related.
0: Okay, the sixth desert island dish. What is your go to dinner party dish?
1: It depends on who I'm having over. But um I am a huge fan of just roasting chicken. Yeah. And that's why I put a chicken on the cover of Nothing Fancy, because to me, it is the ultimate sort of I like you dish. It is it can be easy. I'm so surprised at how many people say they've never roasted a whole chicken. No, But to me, it's easier than searing chicken thighs or doing a number of other things on your stove. And I I think I write in Nothing Fancy that if you smear a chicken with enough fat and season it with enough salt and roast it until it's falling apart tender, it's going to be great no matter what. Yeah, And so I I think that it's one of those things that's really hard to mess up if you know your basics, which is fat and salt and a chicken and an oven. (laughs) Um, I feel like that's a good life lesson. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On Desert Island Dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. So we ask everyone, what
1: is the cookbook that you treasure the most? Oh, gosh. Cookbook that I treasure the most is probably... Probably was... It's like a hilariously unuseful cookbook, but yeah. <laughs> it was by this chef, Michel Bra, who's like a famous French chef. And he wrote this book called Desserts, a notebook or a notebook desserts or something like that. And it's all illustrated dishes um, from his dessert menus at his restaurants. And they're insanely intricate and the recipes do not work because I tried. Okay. And <laughs> so they're really very fancy, but it is one of my first cookbooks that I ever bought. I don't know why I chose to start there, but it is, has a really special place in my heart. I think it's out of print, but it is totally impractical. But when I read it, I remember thinking this person cares so much about food and I care about food this much too. Yeah. And it wasn't that I aspired to make the things in the in the book, but it was you know the intensity of which he attacked food in general and the care for it and the ingredients and talked about the milk where the cows come, <laughs> the cows where the milk comes from and... And all this stuff. And now it's a little eye-rolly, I think, if you write that kind of book. But this was 20 years ago it was published. And yeah, so genuine and just lovely. And I, I still sometimes will just pop it open and read a few things and find myself feeling inspired just about feeling secure that I chose this path.
0: Yeah, I love that. Okay, we're on to the final seventh Desert Island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island? Oh,
1: a pizza. Ooh. What would be on it? Cheese.
0: Okay. (laughs) Just,
1: just, okay. Yeah. I don't like anything. on my. I'm like a pizza purist. Okay. Where's the best pizza you've ever had? Well, that's a tough question because there's a lot of different types of pizza. Yes. So I would say I had some of the best pizza I've ever had in Rome, but it was a very specific type of pizza. Yeah. I think New York has amazing pizza. Prince Street pizza. Prince Street pizza is great. I can't, you can't go there anymore. The line is around the block Yeah. and I just refuse. I won't wait in line for anything. There's a few other slice joints in town that I love. And listen, we need to One is called Scars. Okay. And that is in the Lower East Side and one is called Upside and that is in the hell hole that is Times Square. Okay. But it is worth going to Times Square for this pizza. It is to me like I just had it for the first time and it's it's relatively new but it's the perfect slice of new york style pizza and then there's of course you know like the neapolitan style and there's a lot of different directions that this answer could go in but i would just say i would be happy with you know any really the best of whatever version whether it was grandma style sicilian new york slice neapolitan the best version of any of those would be my last meal. You can do that and would you have a pudding
0: no, I'm not a I'm not a pudding person. Okay, just lots of pizza and so we'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, maybe an ice cream. Okay, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Alice and Roman, those are your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you. So there we are. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tell all your friends about the podcast. The more, the merrier. <laughs> and I will see you next week for more Desert Island dishes. Bye.